Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Teresa. And I'm Juliet. And we're doing something a little different. This is going to be on our regular feed, but we're teasing a new project that we're doing. We're teasing our Patreon, and we're going to be doing in-depth television show discussions, criticisms, whatever we feel like doing that day. (laughs) (laughs) Analyses. Yeah, exactly. That's the right word. We're doing episode one on our regular feed, and then the rest of them will be on our Patreon. So as an extra special incentive for you to be a patron. Yes, we're enticing you. We hope that you will be drawn in by this first episode and you will join us on Patreon for the subsequent episodes and all kinds of other cool things. Random stuff. Uh, It's going to be awesome. Many Patreon things. But we are returning to the works of Mike Flanagan. (laughs) Say it. You got to say it. We're going back to the Flaniverse, (laughs) y'all. We're returning to the Flaniverse for our second in-depth analysis of a Mike Flanagan television series. But we're going to go to his first television series, his first original series for Netflix, Haunting of Hill House. And in today's episode, we're going to go over the very first episode of the series, which is called Stephen Sees a Ghost. So we already did Midnight Mass. Correct. We did that in all of its seven episode glory. We did. This one is a bit longer. It's 10 episodes, but we're still going to go episode by episode and yes. see see what we can sink our teeth into. I, once again, have watched this one already. <laughs> and surprise, surprise, I have not. <laughs> this is my first time watching it. But I watched this in 2018 when it came out because it was a big deal on Netflix. Lots of advertising went behind this one. And being that I watch a lot of horror in general, of course, I was marketed this uh, television series. And I watched it and I remember being absolutely in love with it, being that I also love the story, The Haunting of Hell House. And I love pretty much all of the adaptations. And I'm going to mention one of them later on in our discussion. But of course, I watched it, loved it. But there's been a lot that's happened since 2018. Truly. That Teresa in 2018 was a very, very small baby bird. (laughs) And it's like, feed me horror. Yes. I was like, please, mama bird, feed me. (laughs) Not only that, but I've forgotten quite a bit of, of this series. So I'm glad that we're going back to Mike Flanagan works. And I am excited to rewatch this, especially knowing sort of his style and having watched some of his other work. I'm really excited. What do you think so far post episode one? I know you don't have a lot of context. What do you think in general? Well, I, uh, yeah, I don't have a lot of context. I think the kind of cool thing for me is having watched and enjoyed Midnight Mass, I'm definitely seeing, you know, more of his style coming out. Mm-hmm. And actually, the thing I forget, I often forget because I think of them, you know, I, I think of Mike Flanagan now as this like series guy, you mm-hmm. know, like he's really made his reputation as of late as being the guy with all the cool Netflix series. <laughs> um, yeah. Which he is like rightly so. I always forget and I really didn't talk about it when we were doing Midnight Mass because it kind of just like 
I didn't think about it. And part of that is I was trying not to do like a lot of IMDBing, which I'm trying not to do with this one too, because I don't want to know too much. I don't want to like read the trivia and have, you know, his whole thing ruined for me. <laughs> yeah. I'll get there at some point. We're probably when we're about halfway through the series or something. But I always forget that he directed Doctor Sleep. And I love Doctor Sleep like so much. I'm a big like shining person anyway. Mm-hmm. And the original Shining, you know, the Kubrick version, has a lot of pros. It has a lot of cons. You know, Stephen King's feelings about it are really interesting to me. But I loved Dr. Sleep, like, so, so, so much when we saw it in the theater. And because I wasn't thinking about that with Midnight Mass, I wasn't, like, actively thinking about the connections. And actually, I just rewatched Dr. Sleep this weekend because I felt like it. It was <laughs> snowing. And I was like, sure, snow, Overlook Hotel, something something you know <laughs> makes perfect <laughs> it sense. makes perfect sense and so to have rewatched it and now to be starting to watch this is cool because i can see the stylistic similarities i can see some of the things that he was doing in this series that then he advanced or twisted in dr sleep mm-hmm. so i'm really excited to see more of that as we go on with the series There are some cues that Mike Flanagan reuses in terms of jump scares. Yeah. But I don't think they ever really get ruined. They're still effective. Um, Even with reuse, I think that they're still effective. Now, if I had watched Haunting of Hell House, then Haunting of Bly Manor, then Midnight Mass, then Midnight Club, might be a little bit different. (laughs) But now, I mean, like I said, it's been four years since I've watched it, but the scares still got me. And in this particular episode, there actually aren't that many jump scares. No, there's not. In fact, I kept waiting for more jump scares, in part because, like, a lot of ghosts and possession films, especially the modern ones of the sort of ghost and possession resurgence that was kicked off by Paranormal Activity and really, in my mind, perfected by the Conjuring series, totally. jump scares are their bread and butter. Mm-hmm. And part of that is, too, that a lot of the ghost and possession movies in the modern resurgence were PG-13. Yeah. So they kind of had to go with jump scares because they couldn't go with gore. And that's okay. Like, we love PG-13 horror. We're so, you know, like, I'm so glad that PG-13 horror exists mm-hmm. so that younger fans can find their fandom. Yeah. But definitely, especially being like a Conjuring mega fan, there were several points in this first episode where I was like, oh man, oh man, (laughs) here's where it's going to go. And it didn't. And I like that because he almost got me in that way too, where I was waiting for it. And then it came, the few times it did come, it was at a moment that I was not expecting. Yeah. It also would be something that's not scary. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like one particular scene that I'm remembering, it's a scene where Hugh, the father, in a past uh, memory, is closing the door to his twins' room, to Luke and Nell's room. I think they're twins. They're around the same age. Yeah. He shuts the door to their room, and then he goes into another room, and he hears that Shirley is talking in her sleep. So then he shuts her door, and he turns around, and their door is open again. And so he goes and shuts the door. And then he walks away, but then the camera kind of pans and follows, and yep. you're like, oh, oh, crap, oh, crap, something's about to happen. <laughs> and then he just gets back in bed. And that's it. Like, yeah. the sound of him pulling back the covers is the scariest terrifying. part. <laughs> Almost through the Roku remote at the yeah. <laughs> TV. But he really, really, really builds the suspense and, like, ratchets it up to a point because the title of the series is The Haunting of Hill House. Right. So you're like, there's about to be ghosts, there's about to be supernatural stuff, 
But the little teeny tiny glimpses of what you get in terms of the supernatural in this episode is like such a tease that it can't be scary. Yeah. Like it's it's not scary yet. Like the bent neck woman that Nell keeps referring to that she keeps seeing. We see the bent neck woman, but only in profile. It's scary because you're like, okay, this is what what's happening. But also, like, you don't get to see the bent neck woman's face. Right. She's just a shadow. And then the other moment that I think of immediately is the scene where Hugh and Stephen are running out of the house. Yeah. And Stephen's supposed to keep his eyes closed, but he sees a figure kind of chasing them through the house, even though his father has cautioned him to keep his eyes closed no matter what. And those scenes are a little scary, but once again, not like a jump scare situation. Yeah. Just enough to be like, wait, what? Why is that happening? Yeah. Maybe it's because this um, series is longer form, so he has more time to work. Not so much scary in this particular episode, but intriguing. Yeah, well, I mean, the first episode of Midnight Mass was definitely like that, too, where it wasn't so much scary. Like, you could tell that there were potentially scary things afoot, Mm -hmm. but... I wasn't, like, straight up scared in that either. I was more just like, ooh, something weird's happening, and it <laughs> might be something, and it might be nothing, and maybe maybe this thing is this, maybe it's not. It seems like with his first episodes, it's less about the scares and more reeling you in with the potential of scary things yet to be revealed. Yeah. So... Mike Flanagan definitely has a cadre of actors and actresses that he loves to draw from. One being his wife, Kate Siegel, who's fantastic. She's wonderful. I've I've loved everything that she's been in. All the way back to Hush, when she was in Hush in 2012, Uh which was Mike Flanagan, of course. She must be his muse or something because they just work incredibly well together. Yeah. Carla Gugino is in this one. I don't... I, you know, I think I read that she played like a minor, minor, minor character in um, Midnight Mass, but it was like passing. It wasn't oh, okay. anything like intense. But Carly Gugino plays Olivia Crane, the Crane sibling's mom. Henry Thomas, who is also in Midnight Mass, he plays Hugh Crane. Elizabeth Reeser plays Shirley Crane. She's the second oldest of the Crane siblings. You have Oliver Jackson Cohen, who plays Luke Crane. He is Nell Crane's age equivalent i don't know if they're twins but they're like pretty close in yeah. age kate siegel plays theodora crane and then victoria padretti plays nell crane and this was actually the first time i ever saw victoria padretti in anything because this was right before you came out uh-huh yeah and actually i don't even know she might not have been in the first season of you no she wasn't in the first season of you so she did not come into that series until 2019 so the year after this particular show debuted so i honestly think that i'm fine with reusing the same actors like if you've got a you know a rapport with them you're working well together everything's going really well like why not oh yeah yeah i mean that's a move that a lot of directors do you know wes anderson does it paul thomas anderson has done it um we see that quite often and hey if it works it works and it totally does for him. Annabeth Gish. Who I love. Yeah. She's great. She was fantastic in Midnight Mass. And then to go back and see her in this, 
Samantha Sloyan, who played the dreaded um, <laughs> Bev Keen in Midnight Mass. <laughs> She's in this, too, as sort of a, a smaller character. Robert Longstreet, who plays Mr. Dudley, he was also in Midnight Mass. He played Joe Colley in Midnight Mass, just like one of my favorite characters in the entire series. He's definitely got his like his tried and true, his his group of actors that he's going to draw on all the time. Hopefully in future, you know, um, Rahu Kohli isn't in this one, but I hope that he stays in. I know. The pack of actors. I just love him in general. I know. His Twitter. If y'all haven't followed him yeah, on Twitter. It's the best Twitter. Yeah. Tw- I'm, I know Twitter's burning down actively as we speak, but you should definitely check it out. Yeah. He's fantastic. Yeah. If you're still there, he's worth following. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I hope that he moves to some other social media platform because he's yeah. just freaking hilarious. So kind of piggybacking off of what you had mentioned earlier about how Mike Flanagan sort of draws you in in that first episode. I think one of the things that he does very, very well in all of the series that I've watched, and this one is no exception, is showing interpersonal relationships between family. Yeah. And how breaks and fractures can happen within a family structure and how those things can kind of metastasize into something really harmful and toxic. In this particular case, it seems like there was, they keep referring to LA. So something happened in LA, we know. And also the fact that Stephen wrote a book about their experiences when they were children in Hill House. The story as we know it so far is that these kids and their parents, the Crane children and their parents lived in Hill House. Something terrible happened. Their mother died And now we're kind of like in this time jump between what actually happened at Hill House and what's happening currently, kind of catalyzed by Nell Crane, who's like frantically calling her siblings. They're all kind of calling each other, calling their dad. Hey, Nell's not doing well. We need to figure out and kind of shore up and see what's going on. Something that really struck me is that these interpersonal relationships that Mike Flanagan builds, while dramatic, of course, because it's a TV show end up being so realistic yeah that it's almost hard to watch yeah i think the thing he does really well is that he balances fractured relationships and the really complicated relationships we have with family with the fact that they are still family and you innately care about these people and that makes the fractured part of the relationship more complicated Mm -hmm. we certainly saw that in many relationships in Midnight Mass. And we see that among the siblings and their relationship with their father. Like, there's a lot of tension and there are different tensions between different members of the family and within different relationships. And yet, they all do still recognize those bonds of family and Mm -hmm. do care about each other, sometimes a little resentfully. But I think that is so real and to be able to capture that well in a group of characters like from the first episode of a series is really remarkable because we often see either the very dramatic like oh we haven't spoken in forever where you're kind of like okay I guess Mm -hmm. um or the very unrealistic like everything is fine and we all love each other so much and we never even like get on each other's nerves a little bit. Yeah. He really captures how complicated family is. There are certain ways that you can capture that sort of like cynical family, you know, 
aspect. And like there's a scene where Theodora and Shirley are sitting together outside on a porch having a beer together. And there's this moment when Shirley says something about whether or not Theodora is going to call Nell or if Nell has called Theodora. And she just kind of like raises her eyebrows as she's drinking from a beer. And I'm like, that alone just shows so much more. You could say minutes and minutes worth of dialogue. And that just like that facial expression just kind of nails it. And not to take away from Kate Siegel because she's freaking awesome. But to be able to know like that's all you have to say. Yeah. Because what we know about those siblings, we know so much more because they're not telling us. Yeah. They're showing us those interactions. And from what we can tell when they're kids, they had a good, you know, a good relationship. Yeah. And they're all kind of like, they kind of click up together sometimes. The boys kind of click up against the girls. The girls are doing some exploring. They have a good relationship, though, it seems like. And then when we kind of move to the present, we know that Theodore and Shirley are close because they both live in the same funeral home. But Stephen does not have a good relationship with them. Luke is apparently an addict. As far as we know, he's in some sort of rehab. I'm assuming drugs, but it could be alcohol. Yeah. And Nell seems to be the most fragile of all of them. And they kind of make reference to her as being sort of a drama queen. Or that she's had a lot of problems like this before, so maybe they don't take it as seriously, which is unfortunate, obviously. But just those little interactions that we have between them, say, like, volumes about how they all interact. And same with their dad. You can tell their dad cares quite a bit about them, but also there's a lot of resentment held by the kids against their dad because they don't really know what happened. They've been kept from the truth. The complexities of real-life relationships made palatable, made easily digestible by just one hour of television. Oh, yeah. Which is, that's like a a masterful thing to be able to kind of key into is to show these are real characters. These are real people. This is stuff that you probably can, you know, have had happen in your your own family, especially considering this is his first like big TV series. Yeah. And it's for Netflix. Like, I don't know. He's just. He's a great, he's a really, really good director, very talented writer and director. I also think it's really interesting the way that he is able to take a traumatic event in a family and reflect many different manifestations of that trauma Mm -hmm. in the adult children in particular. It's not, again, like the kind of tropey thing that some shows and movies do where you have like... The normal ones and then the one who is still dealing with the trauma who is, you know, the air quotes crazy one or the air quotes fragile one or the air quotes drama queen. It's like you can see very obviously in these characters that they were all damaged Mm -hmm. by the death of their mother and that that manifests differently in each individual. And I think that's really great, too, because trauma and grief are not monoliths Mm -hmm. and they manifest differently. Even people who shared the same traumatic event, that trauma is going to manifest and that grief is going to manifest in different ways. And so he does a great job of that too. Yeah, because you're seeing both the family members who were able to draw something not necessarily positive, but productive out of that grief. Like Shirley runs a funeral home. Obviously, that's going to be tied to grief and loss in your life. Stephen, once again, productive, not necessarily good. 
has created a successful writing career Mm -hmm. off of this. And it's not solely because of his experiences with the house and with his mother, but it started with that. And then you also see Theodora, who seems like she might be recklessly kind of ping-ponging between relationships or between interactions and hookups with women. At least that's as far as we see. And Luke turning to something, you know, substance to kind of handle his grief. And then Nell, who's still kind of a mess. Yeah. And none of them have healed all the way, but they have moved forward in different ways in their lives. And I think that that is really, really, really realistic because not everybody is going to be able to draw something productive or something positive out of a grief experience or a traumatic experience. Some people are, and that's great. Yeah. And some people are definitely not. They're the ones that need the support. And especially in the show, at least at the beginning of it, it doesn't seem like they're getting that support. Right. For one reason or another. But speaking of trauma bonding, I thought that the scene where they all wake up at 3.03 and they're all like grasping their yeah. throats. I thought that was such an amazing actual physical way to show trauma bonding altogether. Yeah. Both as a supernatural thing. Because, like, obviously it's supernatural that they all woke up at exactly the same time and grab their throats. But I thought it was really cool to see an actual way that you can show that all these kids are tied together with this terrible experience. Yeah. And something else terrible that's going to happen. Yeah. How else could you show, you know, a trauma bond so clearly, so succinctly between all of these kids? Just once again, just amazing. It's just really good. If you didn't know yet, we're just turning this into a Mike Flanagan. I'm just kidding. (laughs) This is just a Mike Flanagan love letter podcast. (laughs) So another thing I wanted to talk about is the way that Mike Flanagan treats addicts. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Because we see in Midnight Mass, we see Riley, who is an alcoholic. Yeah. And how they kind of, um, the tender and compassionate way we treat Riley and how he is moving through addiction and recovery and also hurting because of the things that he had done, you know, while he was in the throes of addiction or while he was actively, you know, I think he was just, yeah, he was just an alcoholic. So while he was still drinking. And in this particular episode, we see Luke who has not He has entered recovery, but it seems like, at least in the first episode, that he has relapsed or he's using again. Yeah. How do you feel about the difference in portrayal between Riley and Midnight Mass and somebody who is in active addiction in Luke? We're going to have to see where Luke's journey takes him. Certainly, we meet Riley, I don't want to say at the end end of his journey because that's kind of a mischaracterization but we see riley on the other side of a certain leg of his journey Mm -hmm. with addiction and recovery you know he has you know been through a horrible event that resulted in someone else's death because he was under the influence he's been through incarceration he has found recovery um, and been able to maintain sobriety and he's now post-incarceration and he's at that stage where he's figuring out as a returned citizen how to 
both reintegrate into society outside of incarceration and how to maintain his sobriety in a less controlled environment than he had on the inside. So he's in a very different spot. Now, we don't know Luke's full story yet, obviously, but when we meet him, it very much seems like he's still very much in it in terms of sort of the beginning of his recovery. It sounds like, you know, maybe he's attempted recovery before and has relapsed, which is a very common experience. And I think the fact that his family acknowledges that and and kind of knows that that's coming is really intelligent on the part of the writing. It's not this big shock. Mm -hmm. I think that his brother's treatment of him is really compassionate in a very simple way and in a way that often gets mistaken for like foolishness or naivete, Mm -hmm. but it's actually like really caring and really knowing of somebody that he just kind of says to his brother, like, you know, he meets Luke on the steps of his apartment. Luke is carrying an old DSLR camera and he wanted to call him Riley, Steven's (laughs) iPad. And, you know, he just says like, hey, okay, I need the iPad back. It's really important that I have that. I need that for my work. You can keep the camera and I've got $200 on me. Obviously, you're in need of money for something. You know, he doesn't say you need money for drugs. That's why you're here. Mm -hmm. He just says, hey, you need money for something. That's why you're here. That's why you have my stuff. I need this thing back. So I'm going to give you the money that you need. I'm not going to ask questions. I'm not going to be accusatory. I'm just going to provide what you need in this moment. Mm -hmm. And we'll go from there. That kind of a thing. And that is like really... It's really compassionate and it's behavior that you sometimes see in sort of the narrative of addiction framed as like very foolish or enabling, but it didn't come off that way. It came off as like, you know what? You're a person I care about. You're in need of something. In this moment, I'm not going to stop you from doing whatever it is you have planned. So I'm merely going to make sure that you can do it in the safest way possible, which is to not risk arrest at this point. Yeah, it's definitely the harm reduction way to go. Yeah. To just say, okay, I understand that you need something. Let me do my best to, you know, help you with that need. And also it keeps Luke from being arrested. It keeps him from potentially seeking out additional items to be able to pawn or whatever it is that he's doing. Since he's taking an iPad and a camera, they both seem like they're expensive, you know. It seems like that's what's going to happen. And Luke tells him that it's not what it looks like. And Stephen says, I'm glad. Yeah. And that's all. He just gives him the money. Luke return- ends up returning the camera and the iPad and just taking the cash and walking out. But immediately before that, the only time that we've seen Luke, with the exception of flashbacks, is when he wakes up at the same time as the rest of his siblings clutching his throat. And it looks like he is in a recovery center. He's in a place that has its um, bunk beds and there are other people there. And the next time we see him, it does look like Luke is in some sort of distress. And I think we're supposed to think that maybe he's coming down from something. He's withdrawing. Or maybe he's just, you know, that's just how he is. But we're made to think that he's in some sort of physical distress. And also, he just so happens to have broken into Stephen's apartment and stolen these items or taken them. 
even if he meant to return them, who knows? Yeah. So we see that, and I think we're supposed to think that. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, but the way that Stephen treats him, I think, honestly, I mean, best case scenario. If you have a family member who's hurting and using and, you know, they need money or need goods, like, calling the cops obviously isn't going to work. Yeah. And this is also a group of family members who have clearly been through it with him before. Mm through recovery, through potentially jail time, court. Obviously, they've had items taken from them before, too. So it's a very realistic, I think, portrayal because I cannot tell you how many mothers I know that go through a very similar thing with kids who are in recovery. And people say, wow, you're such an idiot. Why would you do that? Why would you give the money? Why wouldn't you call the cops? And it's like, What's that going to do? Right. Except for make it more painful for me and also for them Mm. when you know, I could just give them this and reduce the struggle all the way around. Yeah. I love that his first question to Luke was not like, are you on drugs? What are you on? What have you taken? It was, are you cold? Because he's kind of shaking. Luke is kind of shaking or shivering. And he asks him, he says, are you cold? Mm -hmm. Rather than, are you on drugs? Yeah. There's definitely a lot of love there. Yeah. Um, you can tell between the two of them, even in disappointment or even in mistrust, you know, there's definitely a lot of love there. So it was a very special interaction between the two of them. Yeah. Okay. So queer characters in Mike Flanagan um, television series. We've watched Midnight Mass. We obviously know that Annabeth Gish's character in Midnight Mass is a queer character and it ends up being sort of an important aspect of the television show. And now we're seeing Theodora, who is uh, one of the middle children, is also a queer character. And I know I mentioned it a little bit while we were watching, but what do you think of Mike Flanagan's portrayal of queer characters and how he puts them sort of front and center as main characters in his TV series. I think he does a really good job of just normalizing queerness, that it's a part of who his characters are. It's not necessarily the most extraordinary or unusual part of who they are. It is just a fact of who we are and often how we meet them. It's often through their queerness that we're finding out actually something else very telling about them. Like with Theodora, I thought it was so interesting that on the one hand, she's telling Shirley like boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. You have to have boundaries. And we see through her interactions with the woman that she uh, meets at a club and sleeps with, it almost seems like Theodora has unhealthy boundaries, like that she's got walls up rather than like healthy boundaries, that she's so protective of herself that she has this person who is genuinely attracted to and seems like actually very interested in and she kicks her out on the curb yeah and tries to be very very like standoffish in a way that um i recognize instantly as like self-protection yeah like i'm gonna like act like a really aloof badass because i'm protecting what's within me yeah and i think that it is not because she's queer but her queerness is able to help us see that part of her you know by putting her sexuality on display you could certainly do the same thing with a straight woman Mm -hmm. you know um but he chooses to tell that story through a queer character and same with dr sarah and midnight mass she could have you know um her role overall in the community would be the same whether she was queer or straight but it actually added a lot 
to make her a queer woman mm-hmm. in that case. Yeah, and once we get to Haunting of Bly Manor, it's a queer love story, and, like, it sort of makes me, like, a little winsome because it's very, very, very touchingly told and really, really beautiful and I think important, an important way to tell it. And I would really like to know, like, is Mike Flanagan queer? Does he have somebody queer who's near and dear to his heart? What makes it so important for him to tell those stories? And maybe it's nothing. Maybe he's just like, no, this is just important for me to tell. And that would be awesome, too. But I would really like to know, like, Mike Flanagan, if you're listening, (laughs) hit us up on our email. (laughs) I would really love to know. Um, Because I I truly appreciate it. I do. I agree with you. I think that the the stories are told delicately. I think that it's just a, a matter of fact situation. This character is queer. How can we explore that queer character by also not being like, the queer one exactly know? yeah um, that's a really that's a very cool and i think we're getting to the point where we're gonna see that more and more but at least as of right now when i think of like queer characters in film and in television i always think of him i also think of other like people who are queer so that's another reason like i would love to know is right. like again queer but what did you think of uh, theodore's gloves that's interesting i'm really curious about the gloves because Again, with so much boundary talk with her, I'm really, really curious about the boundaries and mechanisms that she has in place to protect herself and whether those are healthy or whether those are um, creating problems for her or sort of a mask or a crutch for not dealing with uh, her trauma. Are you excited to find out more about the bent neck lady? Oh, yeah. I already have theories. Really? Yeah, I do. Do you want, I mean, do you want to dish now or do you want to wait until they're a little bit more um, Well, I guess I'll go ahead and, and say my theory now. Okay. Um, we don't know as of this episode how the mother died. Mm-hmm. A bent neck woman could certainly be a woman who died by hanging. Mm-hmm. And if the whole the whole thing we know thus far is the mother is dead, the father claims it was a suicide the cops obviously don't think that maybe she was, you know, according to the father, driven to some sort of mental state because of the haunted nature of the house or, you know, there's a lot we don't know. But certainly I keyed into that as soon as we it was kind of starting to come out like, oh, the mother is dead theoretically by suicide. And I was like, ooh, bent neck. You know, that says died by hanging to me. So whether it was, whether the bent neck woman is some sort of um, manifestation, uh, some sort of foretelling of the mother's death, or perhaps another woman who lived in Hill House and died the same way. Again, I'm like going back to The Conjuring where you have the ghost of the hanged mother trying to recreate her death cycle within the modern family. Mm-hmm. So I think it's something, my theory right now is that it's something very, very tied into the mother and her death. Mm-hmm. 
Really quick before we wrap up this episode, I mentioned it before and I did want to touch on it. So the Shirley Jackson tie-in and other depictions of Hill House in literature and in film. The one that I keep thinking of is The Haunting, which like it got panned, you know, whatever. It is what it is. Yeah, it came out like late 90s. I want to say around the same time as Haunting of House on Haunted Hill. It was like the same, that same era of kind of remakes and reimaginings of like haunted house movies so 13 ghosts house on haunted hill the remake and the haunting like all kind of in the same branch of that particular 90s era family tree yeah and like a lot of the same names like i mean the names that are in crane is like the name you know from shirley jackson and we have theo and luke those are all names from shirley jackson's book but the one thing that I appreciate the most, I think, out of this, because it's it's not just a straight-up retelling of the story. Right. It's a story that's based in the same kind of universe, and we're using that house as a tool to be able to tell the story of these kids. And a lot of the themes are there, but it's it's a little different. It's a modern retelling. But the one thing that I appreciate the most is the effort that went into reimagining this house. Yeah. Like the gigantic fireplace with the cherubic heads around it, the lions on the door handles. Like, truly, I think that if Shirley Jackson could be here to, like, tell us about what she imagines Hill House to look like, I think that Mike Flanagan's vision of Hill House in this particular television show is, like, spot on. Creepy old house, beautiful in the daylight, terrifying in the evening, stained windows, big, huge fireplaces. I just think it's, like perfect yeah it's 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 so beautiful (laughs) they did not skimp on the details which i love yeah like i wonder where this it was filmed like did they actually build this house or like is it (laughs) it maybe it's my my flanagan's house and they just (laughs) (laughs) they're like let's just film it at his house no no problem yeah oh it is a manor it's in georgia oh okay so the exterior of the mansion is called Bisham Manor, and it's in LaGrange, Georgia. Oh, interesting. And they have the, actually the address on there, which is probably not a good idea. Yeah, that's not right. Um, but the funeral home, also in Marietta, Georgia. And then the nightclub that they used is in Atlanta. It's called that the sense. Tongue and Groove. And then the interior and Shirley's Mortuary, those were built on site. Those were built in Atlanta. So it was all Georgia, which we know... People love making films in Georgia because of those big, big tax credits. Yeah, though a lot of people are not doing that anymore. Oh, yeah. Well, well, I mean, there are reasons for that. (laughs) If your administration of your state sucks so bad that people don't want to make movies there anymore. Despite getting huge tax credits. Yeah. Yeah. In spite of getting those huge tax credits, it's like, well, guess we're going to Canada. Yeah. Which literally Vancouver is the place to go. For so many reasons. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. All right. So if you want to hear episode two of this, our bonus episodes in terms of Haunting of Hell House, you're going to have to become a patron. Yeah. Join us on Patreon. Uh, what is our what is our Patreon address? Okay, yeah. So the link to our Patreon is patreon.com slash attack of the final girls. All one word, no spaces. And there are many different ways to support us. You know, if you want to become a patron, definitely we encourage that. We love you. We'll do anything for our patrons. <laughs> Not really anything, but you know. Some things. Lots of things. 
Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We are Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.